Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, the monthly podcast series brought to you by the team that produced Global Cosmetics News. In 2021, the business case for gender equality, diversity and inclusion is strong and growing stronger. Indeed, political activism has become the new business currency, especially in the beauty space, where many brands have ditched gender marketing and opted for more inclusive messaging. But what about the actual product? Let's face it, everyone has skin. Is defining product, product category and brand as feminine or masculine still relevant in the 21st century? And how is the beauty industry reimagining gender? To help me answer these questions and more, it is my pleasure to introduce this month's panel. Hello to Mallory Huron, strategist, beauty and wellness at Fashion Snoops. Hello to Lillian Tung, co-founder and CMO at Fur. And a warm welcome to Jennifer Norman, founder at Humanist Beauty and the Humanist Beauty Movement. Welcome, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Mallory, let's start with you. In 2021, what are the key social drivers influencing diversity in beauty movement? Well, I think culturally, we've reached a global reckoning. We've been tracking the evolution of this global fight for a brighter, more equitable future. And it's a future that requires some uncomfortable conversations. Discussions about politics, race, class, personhood, and gender continue to disrupt industries, especially the beauty industry, and challenge societal norms, resulting in brands taking a stand on important issues to align with consumer expectations. What's driving this socially is that consumers are more educated than ever before on key issues, and they're also increasingly uncompromising in terms of supporting a brand that doesn't align with their beliefs. This is why we saw such a mad scramble by brands last year in response to the global BLM protests, as the beauty industry has been forced into a collective reckoning by consumers who have simply run out of patience for inaction, lack of transparency, and excuses. In addition to consumer demands, we're also uh, seeing several interesting trends develop socially that's driving this movement forward. Decolonizing health and wellness spaces, for example, is a big one that we're tracking. Uh, in addition to the healing of racial trauma, hair discrimination, inclusive shade options, and more fluid gender standards, along with a greater visibility for disabilities. That last one is a big one as the disabled community has historically been left out of several key conversations about diversity. And only now are we seeing the beginnings of a substantial shift towards increased visibility. And with all this taken into balance, this is a very powerful moment for activism. And it's also really a great time for openness and healing for communities. We love examples like the Transparent and Black Wellness Collective, which is the first wellness collective and studio for the Black community. The Wellness Collective creates spaces for Black people to heal from intergenerational trauma through trauma-informed swim classes, access to therapists, a stillness rooms, and even fitness classes for the Black community. This collective was born out of a mission of communal healing across the African diaspora through healing spaces, work, and the exploration of intergenerational trauma. And at Fur, Lillian? Um, yeah, for Fur, you know, we were seeing a lot of these social drivers starting around the same time we started as a company. So back in 2016, we were wondering, well, why is the status quo of beauty of what's been dictated towards society as 
the standards of beauty. Why is that the way it is? And I think society has come to a point of reckoning to Mallory's point of the status quo wasn't enough. And there was enough um, over time, this dissatisfaction with how things were going and things were not leading to a place that made a lot of sense for this generation, right? So of course, between climate change, between the discrimination, the lack of inclusivity, the outdated stigmas and taboos, you know, leveled against races and genders and women. Um, it just became the time of a culmination of so many movements. And also the audience was there to hear it. And it was just ready for this, you know, this time. And, and I think it's just all of these things have come together at the right time and the right place with also like the right leaders who are speaking out on it, whether it's in the beauty space or, you know, sort of like a societal cultural space um, who are there leading it. And talking about the right time, what are the social drivers for the humanist movement, Jennifer? Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you so much for having me today. And it's very interesting because I'm a person who's actually been in the beauty industry for over 20 years now, and I've seen this evolution firsthand. I've seen so many interesting facets um, and evolutions within the, um, you know, within society. And I'm uh, particularly talking about the U.S. because um, my lens is primarily uh, U.S. based. But what I was noticing is that, you know, in the past, if we can think about how people had this scarcity mindset um, where um, a few at um, quote unquote the top, the tastemakers, would create um, an elitist um, aspiration of what beauty really meant. And so society went along with that. It really had to do with this idea of competition. And if you know, you're not looking the best, or if you don't wear the best, or if you don't um, you know, behave a certain way, then um, you might not necessarily get the guy, get the girl. Um, you might not necessarily even get the job, to be honest. Um, and so I think that over time, there has been just this culmination of this damage that this kind of mindset has done to us culturally. Um, you know, we see things like body dysmorphia. We see a lot of mental, um, uh, you know, depression and, and issues that stem from just psychologically what this kind of comparison has done to not just women, but to men as well, of striving for this unattainable ideal of what a model in a magazine might look like. And so it's really been fascinating to see this new kind of democratization, which has evolved along with technology, uh, which perhaps started with YouTube and some of the early influencers that would come along and essentially, you know, not be afraid to show themselves and show their flaws, and uh, and how you know to do makeup, and and it was just you know really fascinating to see that there had been this massive shift in power and in clout from um, major media to the everyday person, and along with that is this um, you know this interesting um, occurrence where we do have so much more diversity in 
society, we do see that people are, you know, having children that are are, are having these, um, you know, interesting or, or rare diseases, such as myself. I happen to be a mother of a disabled boy who has a, you know, chronic genetic disorder. Uh, and so I'm very attuned to the need for um, diversity as it comes to ableism. But, um, and we're seeing things like autism and, um, you know, type two, type one, type two diabetes just becoming so apparent. And so there is this recognition that what we were seeing in the mainstream media was not reflective of society at large. And so it's just been really fascinating to know that there is this change and that there is a, a real shift in what beauty means uh, in terms of not necessarily just being about um, this physical idea of perfection, but it is about being the very best you that you can be at any moment. I'm talking about shifts from main media, Mallory. In 2021, what are the key digital drivers assisting the diversity in beauty movement? Well, this is a really interesting space. And we've seen, of course, social media play a huge role for awareness, education, and advocacy in terms of major movements like Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, Disability Visibility, and more. Uh, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram have really allowed for the rise of the activist influencer, with TikTok in particular uh, helping to raise awareness for um, an education about key issues like Eurocentric beauty standards, life with a disability, and more. A TikTok in particular is so engaging because it's informal nature and also the ability to loop, duet, or respond to videos allows for real-time discussion and commentary on key issues, which is being driven by Gen Z's desire to understand these issues and strengthen their collective knowledge base. Brands are also embracing digital learning and technology to open the door to new ventures and connect with consumers who are more socially activist-minded. Uh, social media platforms are making the move to education and the trending hashtag learn on TikTok has gained more than 7 billion views. So there's a real desire here among consumers to learn and understand. Even video games are offering educational opportunities with a new game, Our America, that seeks to fight racism by putting players in the shoes of a black father as he takes his son to school, or a new study that shows how virtual reality experiences help to increase empathy, leading to the innovative game Virtually One, which is meant to increase empathy surrounding the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. You know, and also industry watchdogs continue to influence and call out brands within this space. Estee Laundry points that account a lot, but it really does an excellent job at exposing the racial injustice embedded in many brand cultures and activities. And its popularity speaks to the consumer desire um, to the power of these grassroots efforts to expose wrongdoing within a company. I mean, even an entire dedicated Instagram account out of the gloss arose, helmed by ex-Glossier employees um, who claim they face discrimination amassed uh, tens of thousands of followers and called out this like for what was for a long time unquestioned millennial favorite brand um, and held them accountable uh, for engaging in problematic practices. Uh, I also love the pull up or, or shut up campaign, which we saw begin last year, which called on brands to publish representation within upper management. So I think social media is just really driving this desire for education, transparency and accountability within this space. And is education key for fur, Lillian? Oh, absolutely. We love these digital platforms for education, but it's not, you know, a one-way street. Again, it's allowed for discourse and dialogue and community building about, so specifically for fur, 
we believe that no matter how you want to groom your body hair, whether you want to have it, get rid of it, sometimes get rid of it, trim it, there should be these options and there should never be shame about how you're thinking about it. And what we've known and realized now is there is such a, you know, it's a popular, these social media platforms allow for the discussions to happen organically away from fur about how people do care about wanting to express themselves. And they're so glad that, you know, there's so much less censorship, whether it's self-inflicted societal pressure censorship to now even the digital platforms of the Facebook and Instagram, you know, in 2016, things that we posted, things that other body hair positive influencer posted would get taken down. Now it's slowly moving in a direction that it is more open and you can have a more open dialogue, both verbally and visually on these platforms. That being said, there's still a ways to go. Again, you still see some uneven censorship over there that is stifling the conversation and that you can still, uh, you know, I would encourage again, these platforms to really understand, um, you know, what you're censoring. Like, is it truly an offensive image or is it really an image of self-expression? Whether it's body hair or, you know, sexual identity or gender expression, you know, there's, there's the official like digital platform one. And then there's of course the sort of the users who are also, you know, getting in there and having that conversation. And what you're seeing for the most part on these digital platforms is this passion for these discussions and education. And so for fur, it's great to have that education platform, but we are not at all the ones that lead it. I would say we'd like to facilitate the, uh, the education around body hair choices. And is digital media facilitating the humanist movement, Jennifer? Yes, Siobhan, absolutely. We are actually a digitally native um, organization and brand. And what I will say is that, you know, there is so much um, controversy and discussion about, you know, what uh, digital or social media is doing to our, you know, young consumers and impressionable consumers. And my viewpoint is that, you know, like anything and like most things, you know, social media, digital technology, these are all tools and it's really what you do with them or, you know, what you're actually absorbing in terms of media content that, um, you know, that is going to make the difference. And so the human beauty movement is all about putting out positive, affirming, and, um, you know, just really uh, like these holistic messages that are going to be good for the mind, the body, and the soul. Because to us, beauty isn't necessarily just what you see, it's how you feel. It's, It's really, you know, so much more than just attractiveness or prettiness. It's what you're embodying and how you're living your life and how you're kind of expressing the journey day by day as a form of practice. That's why we call it a movement, not necessarily a goal. And so the interesting thing that we're seeing from a digital perspective is that because, you know, pretty much everybody has a cell phone, almost everybody has a laptop. I mean, the amount of content that is being generated is just extraordinary and it continues to grow and grow and grow every single day. And so no matter who you are, you can have a voice um, and you can, you, you know, you can put yourself out there. But then on the on the flip side, there are so many messages 
And so it can be overwhelming if you if you don't necessarily limit yourself. And so, you know, while it's wonderful that you can find your tribe and you can pretty much find any kind of affinity group or or various place where where you can kind of align and find people that, um, you know, have your values or see beauty in the way that you do, which is wonderful. There is also still so much out there that I would consider, you know, quote unquote toxic. That's not necessarily in the right vein. Um, I, I will often use the quote, you know, hey, influencers, what are you doing with your influence? Um, because I, I, I um, do see that there is, you know, quite a bit of self-aggrandizing. Um, there is this um, interesting shift where um, the, you know, mainstream media is being, you know, you know held and, and their feet to the fire for putting out these um, unattainable types of um, of images yet at the individual level there's such an obsession with beauty filters and people are putting out uh, you know kind of unattainable content of themselves uh, to give themselves kind of a false impression of what they you know what they look like and, and and what is that doing to mental wellness and mental health and so we are definitely ones that ascribe to balance um, we're ones that ascribe to you know utilizing technology in ways to improve yourself and to to you know, learn about what true beauty truly is. Um, and then also really see what we can do to help guide or provide direction to beauty companies and other individuals in terms of, you know, what is wellness and what, um, you know, what can we do when we find ourselves kind of tipping the scales to a certain degree that, you know, might not necessarily lead to long-term wellness. And so, yeah, that's what we're about. I'm talking toxic, Mallory, in 2021, what are the key environmental drivers impacting diversity in beauty movement? Well, a crucial component that connects social justice with environmental advocacy is the gaining awareness of environmental racism. In a nutshell, environmental racism refers to various intersections between climate change and systemic racism, which often disproportionately affect oppressed or disadvantaged communities. Canada, for example, recently introduced a bill specifically addressing environmental racism with a bill that would study the effects of pollution and climate change on marginalized people. Within beauty, we're seeing this issue manifest in several ways. But one of the most powerful examples I've seen is the rising rejection of toxic hair products by BIPOC communities. Consumers are strongly questioning not only the personal hazard, but environmental damage being done by toxic products, specifically within hair care. Many of the products that have been typically used by or sold to BIPOC communities are increasingly shown to be contributing to disproportionate uh, health problems. Beauty standards that have favored Eurocentric hair types of straight, sleek hair have forced Black women to use products with an abundance of harmful chemicals that have been linked to specific pathologies within the Black community, like fibroids or breast cancer. In essence, this is an area where environmentally damaging toxic chemicals have been disproportionately directed towards a specific community uh, systemically and across several years through a beauty standard. It's bad for health, it's bad for the environment, um, and consumers are definitely calling for change within this area, increasingly seeing the importance of recognizing these links and fixing them. And for Lillian? Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, a link between the mentality of if you are a brand um, who thinks diversity is not needed, then you're also a brand who's not thinking really towards the now and to the future. And that's where consumers are demanding a alignment between representation and diversity 
with responsible environmental practices because it those seemingly different views are actually very similar because they just come down to the fact of are you respecting others are you respecting the environment that you are in and how your impact now will affect into the future and so for us at fur of course everything we do you know is about representing diversity and beauty but also at the same time having a moment to think about how what we're doing what we're creating is infecting not only the social impact but definitely the environmental impact of you know sustainability uh, into the future and is alignment with the environment key at the humanist movement jennifer Absolutely, Siobhan. You know, it's interesting because um, a couple of years back, um, my company, we had the opportunity to join the um, B Corporation uh, B Lab Summit um, here in Los Angeles. And since then, the human beauty movement has become a certified B Corporation, which is all about social environmental impact um, and being forces for good from a conscious capitalism standpoint. And one of the things that I learned learned so vividly at this particular summit is that what you do to the planet, you do to the people, and what you do to the people, you do to the planet. We are inextricably linked, and so if we as a society are of an exploitive and extractive mindset, that is exactly how we have been treating the marginalized and those that have less. We've been exploiting and extracting. And we and luckily um, now things are there's this huge awareness for the fact that this is not sustainable number one or nor is it right you know we are leading to our own extinction by not thinking about everyone as equal and not even thinking about the planet as something that we should think of as precious and you know we shouldn't be taking for granted and so similarly as you know as the economy and as this you know this kind of quest for growth that we have been on um, in, um, you know, in, in an industry over the past, you know, call it, you know, 70 years or, you know, perhaps even almost a, uh, a century now has really caused this crisis of environment in climate change and in waste and in, you know, all of these issues that are leading to, um, you know, toxicity and pesticides and, and whatnot. And so, you know, uh, you know, are we doing too little to too late, perhaps, but we have to to try to make change so that our future generations can be well. And similarly, there is also this call for what we're calling climate justice, because what we're finding is that there are these marginalized and poor communities that are being um, kind of unbalanced in terms of the effect of climate change upon them that they did not necessarily, um, you know, have the responsibility for um, for you know creating, and so. Luckily, there are companies uh, that, you know, are within the B Corporation or, or you know, certification and, and those that um are really trying to do good by the environment and by um, understanding uh, and appreciating the need for us to kind of right the wrongs that have happened in the past in terms of diversity and being much more regenerative and cooperative rather than competitive. So that is something that we absolutely advocate at the human beauty movement. And talking conscious capitalism, Mallory, in 2021, what are the key governmental drivers aiding or abetting the diversity in beauty movement? 
Well, in America and elsewhere, legislation is being introduced uh, to more specifically codify and protect rights, responding to the worldwide call for social justice movements. For example, my home state of Connecticut uh, just signed into law legislation aimed at increasing gender and racial representation within state government and to make it easier for a more diverse pool of candidates to run for office. Bills like this are, gener are directed at general diversity and human rights, but we're also seeing interesting examples that intersect with beauty. One of my favorite examples is one that we've tracked for a while now called the Crown Act, which is being signed into law in numerous states across the U.S. For those unfamiliar, the Crown Act seeks to eliminate hair discrimination directed towards people of color, addressing the really interesting intersection of beauty, race, identity, and self-expression. And beauty brands are responding to celebrate this new inclusive legislation with Dove and the Crown Coalition partnering up for Black Hair Independence Day on July 3rd. And movements like this really help to raise awareness on how interconnected the perception of beauty is with social, economic, and racial systems. And the more consumers become educated on these matters, the more they're demanding their governments act in accordance to the call for greater empathy and equity. Conscious capitalism at for Lillian? Um, yes, I mean, I think it's very, very important. Again, specific government initiatives, I don't think I'm particularly well-versed to call out. But you certainly see, again, of course, in the U.S., a real trickle-down effect of when the government recognizes certain issues. You know, for example, Juneteenth, most recently, that's a recognition and a starting point that, again, uh, looking back into the intergenerational racism and discrimination and how that affects the trauma that exists nowadays is something that you still have to deal with as a brand and as a company and what you can do or for our perspective, what fur can do to make sure we're putting out the representation that actually illustrates and reflects where society truly is and not where an outdated version of what beauty used to be projected onto, where it was like skinny white women with super sleek hair and that's the only thing that's beautiful, you know? And so it's a trickle down, it's a cross category, cross channel effort that of course, when led by government initiatives, it really helps. But again, it, it's not like they're the only ones that have to lead it. I think there's so much responsibility that it falls onto companies such as FUR to, again, lead that conversation because we can be so agile and we represent immediately the needs and the desires of the customers that we hear and serve. And what would the humanist movement like to see from government? Well, it's a fascinating question because I think historically the government would be the last place that people would look for beauty cues, but um, perhaps not so much these days. I think that things are changing. And the reason why is because um, in the past, if you think about our legislators, it was predominantly white male, um, you know, not very much representation across the board. But um, now I think that we're seeing, I mean, God bless Kamala, um, you know, we are seeing such power in representation of, you know, not only seeing women in office, but um, just the beautiful, extraordinary diversity of color, you know, Muslim um, legislators and uh, just, you know, it, it, you know, Asian. And we're um, definitely seeing, you know, such power in Cece Abrams in Georgia and, um, you know, uh, what she is doing as being a force to reckon with. And really, you know, the idea of, you know, women in power, diversity 
diversity and power is a beautiful thing for society because it really does showcase that um, people are going to have a voice when it comes to you know creating law or creating policy but Beyond the, our own, you know, kind of U.S. or country government, what I like to think about is governance um, in terms of, you know, companies, corporations, because what I am sensing is that, you know, government and nonprofits alone are not going to be able to make the kinds of shifts in society that pri the private sector can the private sector can move much faster. Frankly, that's where the money is and, and people follow the money. And the government is typically slow to move. And so that is why conscious capitalism and um, things like you know being a force for good as a business, as being a for-profit business, is important to not necessarily only be about you know the money, but also being about the people and the planet, and prioritizing diversity in your policies and in your practices and in the way that you're treating all of your stakeholders. So you know what does your board of directors look like? Um, what are your policies in terms of high Hiring. Um, what kind of programs do you have in place to, you know, help those that um, might be queer or who, you know, may have a, you know, disability? Um, and just making sure that you give everybody a seat at the table so that there's inclusivity and that there's justice and that everybody feels that they have a voice. And talking about a seat on the table, Mallory, what could, should the diversity in beauty movement look like in 12 months time? Well, that, that could and should distinction is very, is very important. Um, what it should look like is quite different from what it could look like, but I think there's a, a sense of both optimism and realistic expectations here. Uh, what's a bit surreal is that this same time last year, the beauty industry was posing the same exact question. I read so many pieces to the effect of what can we change within a year? Where do we expect the industry to be within a year? As brands and consumers alike grappled with these monumentous cultural moments, not only Black Lives Matter, but of course, Stop Asian Hate and many others. This really allows us to look back at the promises made by various companies as a sort of gauge of past behavior as an indicator of future behavior and grade their progress in this arena, which has essentially been a mixed bag of encouraging progress and still hollow promises. My hope for the next 12 months for diversity and beauty movement is for some real substantial change. We've seen small steps like Unilever removing the term normal from their beauty packaging and ads to better focus on inclusivity and positivity. But these steps are admittedly small when taken in a balance uh, compared to the bigger picture. What I'm hoping for are some brand partnerships and bold movements that authentically demonstrate to consumers that the beauty industry is changing in a more fundamental way. And it would be nice to see some of these bold movements come from key larger players, not just from smaller indie space brands who have historically been the driver behind any substantial change within this space. So over the course of the next year, uh, we expect consumer demand for greater diversity, representation, inclusivity, and equity to grow. And these consumers are increasingly advocating for these demands on social media, bringing their grievances directly to brands' doorsteps. This level of accountability will only grow as consumers become more educated and aware about brand practices, narrow beauty standards, and other key issues. 
I also expect to see a much more growth within uh, decolonizing beauty and wellness, which is a very hot topic right now, as BIPOC communities speak out about the white gaze that has taken over many of these industries. Companies like Slow Factory Foundation speak out about the issue and call on members in the industry to listen to indigenous voices and wisdom. While the I Collective organization works to create a new narrative about the historical contribution of indigenous peoples within forging and wellness. So really seeing these conversations address across industries, across spaces, and really bring these uncomfortable conversations to a place where we can then get past the point of awareness and start enacting real change. What are your hopes for the next 12 months, Lillian? Um, well, I do think again, yes. Indie beauty brands have been really the ones leading the push towards diversity, but there's only so much the furs and the fur sized businesses can do to really make this mainstream. So I agree with Mallory. I would love it to see these bigger companies who've got the spend, who've got the consumer base and who have the brand awareness to really get in there and do more than just performative activism. Um, so campaign representation, product, uh, creation that speaks more to a diversity of needs and also putting pressure from then to make sure that all the vendors that they work with and all the channels they advertise on and all their internal corporate practices also reflect the messaging that they're putting out there because i know the indie brands that you know are in my peer space we are all doing that but we can only enact so much change in 12 months because we're small and we have other, you know, we're truly still trying to build a business for these global, global powerhouses. I would sort of put forth the challenge to them to really not just depict outwardly this diversity and push that forward, but also look internally and also expansively across their network of who they work with. And that's really how you can make sort of get the most bang for your buck um, to move this movement forward. And your hopes, Jennifer? Wow, I have so many hopes. I, I would say that, you know, over the past year, let's face it, this world has been through crisis. And it seems like a lot of the um, motion in terms of diversity has been reactions to these watershed moments of trauma, unfortunately. If we think about George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and if we think about Stop Asian Hate, you know, and what's going on with the accusations against Chinese or Asians, uh, you know, with with respect to, to COVID. And so what I would love to see is for us to move past the trauma and come to this place of healing where we can stop shouting at each other and accusing each other and being offended by each other and instead come to a place where we can have real conversations with each other with quieter voices perhaps where we can really kind of you know sit down and see eye to eye and you know not just talk the talk and 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 understand but really kind of move forward in a meaningful progressive way that is based not on hate but on love so that we can be this wonderful fabric of diversity which is built upon unity but first and foremost and ultimately based upon love that's what i would love to see and with that i would like to thank my guests mallory lillian and jennifer for joining me today and to you for listening 